All right, welcome to episode 17 of the Denver Crux podcast. Today, I am joined by Ben Pelton. Ben is a jiu-jitsu practitioner, a human performance specialist, and highly versed in the field of cold exposure. Today, we're going to be diving into the science of resiliency and how it leads to an optimized life. If anyone wants to reach out to Ben for some further information, benpelton.com. Again, that's B-E-N-P-E-L-T-O-N.com. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Denver Crux, a podcast dedicated to the Colorado climbing community and their passion for adventure and pushing the limits of the human spirit. All right, Ben, officially welcome to the Denver Crux podcast. Thank you for having me, Jared. I'm excited to be here and share. I'm super excited. So um, a little bit of background. I went to our good friend, our good friend's wedding a few months ago, maybe coming up. Yeah. More than a few months ago now. And I met Ben at the wedding. Um, You had met William in college. You guys both went to the same school. Shout out to William Godwin, by the way. An absolute beast always has been, always will be. <laughs> and I saw you at the wedding. We had a very, very short interaction. There was a lot of stuff going on, a little bit of dancing. There was some barbecue, so I very easily got distracted. But we had just a very short interaction. I knew that you were also interested in general in the world of health and fitness. I knew you were a healthy individual, but we really didn't get a chance to really dive into what that actually meant. And it wasn't until just a few weeks ago that I was talking to William on the phone and I was talking about some of the stuff that I was doing that day. And he said, Ben does that same stuff. You guys are like the same person. And I'm like, really? Because that's kind of a unique list of activities to do in a particular day. I've never met anyone else that kind of does those things. So I was immediately very uh, interested in contacting you, having this conversation. I didn't realize how alike we were. So, well, I'm interested to actually hear what that conversation was about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? I'm kind of keeping it on a cliffhanger right now. Kind of <laughs> on a cliffhanger. Uh, but let's just say we have a very unique set of hobbies and healthy habits that most people in the world just don't do and, dare I say, wouldn't understand. And kind of that's what this that's what the goal of this podcast is about is to kind of shed some light to some of the healthy habits that we do, some of the sports and activities that we do and just diving into that. So, um, first things first, I want to start off, Ben, can you tell us who you are and just a little bit about what you do? Awesome. So for everyone, I'm Ben, I'm from Miami, Florida, and I grew up here 
playing sports. And what I do professionally is I'm a human performance coach. I focus on four pillars, which is breathwork, movement, minerals, nutrition, and then mindset. And I use these four pillars to really, you know, impact people's lives dramatically. I work one-on-one -on -one with clients. I focus mostly on corrective exercise, more on the physical therapy aspect of movement. Of course, there's the performance training that I do with preparation for jujitsu training and strength training. But mostly I really dive into the physical therapy aspect of movement. And then really, I'm, I'm really obsessed with breath work. I am a Oxygen Advantage uh, Advanced Instructor, and I'm also a Wim Hof Instructor. So I use different styles of breath work to um, do group classes and also work one-on-one -on -one with individuals with breath work. I, I'm obsessed with minerals. Um, so I, I'm a huge advocate for magnesium specifically and the benefits that magnesium provides people. And then mindset, I'm a, you know, a wellness coach use, utilizing the SHINE methodology from Nicole Greer. And the SHINE method is um, S for self-assessment, H for habit work, I for integrity work, N is for next right steps, and then E is energy work. So social energy, money energy, intellectual energy, emotional energy, all these different aspects that energize people to have a happy and fulfilled life. So using the SHINE method, I really tap into people's mindset and focus on how we can improve their life through goal setting and future oriented um, perspectives on tackling life. Dude, that is a very vast skill set and resume. I'm super excited to dive into the stuff. I can't even tell you. <laughs> um, so first of all, how did you get into the world of human performance? Um, it started with weight training at 12. So when I was a young man, uh, my father brought me into the weight room at my uh, middle school preparatory school and had coach Burns, my weight training coach. And he just put me through the conventional weight training program. And I just started with my, those spotted black and white notebooks and just started doing the, you know, weight training protocols. And then ever since then, I've just been focused on strength training for sports. Um, during high school, I was a lacrosse player and I ended up achieving the All-American status in my senior year as a lacrosse player and was All-County here in Miami-Dade Player of the Year. And then from there, I went to Florida State University to play lacrosse at their sports team and um, was you know a defensive player of the year while I was at FSU. And so I've always been obsessed with strength training and performance, right? Like, how can I be a better athlete in the sport of lacrosse? And then from there, it just kind of like is a huge rabbit hole that you that you know, that it just <laughs> human performance just goes on and on. You know, I initially, my initial education is in exercise physiology. And I, I was immediately drawn to that. And it sounds like it sounds like you kind of saw the same path in terms of all those different branches 
that it leads out of. I think when a lot of people think about some of these things, even human performance, for example, when a lot of people think about those, they just kind of think, oh, okay, so you're a personal trainer and you help people lift weights and you're or a gym teacher, you teach the kids how to run and play sports. And it's amazing how deep that rabbit hole goes and all the different benefits and just how altruistic that field is because you're not just showing people how to do things, obviously. You are literally teaching them how to live better and optimize themselves. You know, and I find that fascinating that you took that so far. You just went all the way with it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. And that's a really beautiful explanation of what the exercise physiology and realm really can evolve into. Um, yeah. So obviously you have so many, so many facets that you are, that you operate with, um, from a professional basis, um, from the human performance side, what does that look like in terms of when you are training people, because you kind of work on both sides of the spectrum, you're working with the human performance, but you also work with the physical therapy. And I, and do you kind of see that as being a kind of one side of the house is reactive, the other side is proactive? Um, as far as proactively treating people to feel better and then reactive as far as like the actual training, um, exercises being selected. What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, so who, so in general, who are your, who are your clients on the performance enhancement aspect of things? Yeah. These are jujitsu athletes. These are people okay. that, that are actually interested in improving their endurance through jujitsu training. Excellent. And, and for the PT, is that the same clientele? Like when a jujitsu athlete injures themselves and needs to rehab back, is that also the same kind of field that you're working in? No, I work with a lot of uh, tough cases of individuals that have sought out actual physical therapists or doctors or chiropractic or even medical professionals that these are kind of mystery cases and people can't really figure out how to approach that individual and get them feeling better. So I'm kind of like this, you know, hidden gem, I would say, of having such a deep understanding of the physiology from, like you said, a performance aspect, but also a rehabilitation um, spectrum that I just understand how to get their bodies moving and feeling better. So most of my one-on-one clients right now are just dealing with regular general pop of people that have like scoliosis or hip impingements or um, really buckled knees. Uh, you know, I had an 83-year-old client that I was helping with her knees. Um, just really tough cases like that, that they've tried to get help with professionals and it just, they're not getting the solution they're seeking. And then I, I hit them with that education. I know this is kind of a, a broad question, but where where do you see, what is the root of a lot of the cases that you get from the PT side of things, are these things that injuries have occurred? Are these are these um, 
injury or deviations that have occurred over just a lifetime of not doing what they needed to do? Is this a cumulative effect? Do you see more acute um, aspects when it comes to human functionality operating at a basic level? I think it's really the cumulative deviation of misuse. It's really misuse over long-term, chronic misuse of the tissue, of the joints, um, sitting in the chairs improperly, um, also the footwear, having the wrong footwear for like 30 years can really distort the foot tissue. Um, so it's really a, a, you know, totality of everything of them misusing their body and then their boi- their joints just being so frustrated at the misuse. Is the whole daily lifestyle and especially the occupations that most of us have these days in the 21st century of these office jobs and, you know, people wake up in the morning time, they get out of bed, they get into their cars, they're seated, they might be sitting in traffic for an hour, they go to their cubicle, they sit down for another eight to 10 hours you know, and this is multiple jobs, not just office jobs, by the way, obviously. Um, they they come home, they sit on the couch, they watch TV, they move to the dinner table, they, they sit down again, and then the whole cycle starts over again. I mean, how detrimental, you know, is that from a human condition standpoint? I mean, I just, it seems like how we live today, we don't do the natural stretching we don't do the natural locomotion. We're not hunter and gatherers anymore. Um, how do you feel about this lifestyle change these days? I think you described it perfectly, right? You, when you get off your bed, normally people's beds are raised up off the ground. So they're already sitting at the edge of the bed when they get from laying down to sitting. Then they stand up and migrate to the next seat, and it could be the dining room table. And then they migrate to the car and then they migrate to the office chair and then they migrate back to the car and so forth. So if you actually look at what their movement pattern is filled with, it's a very restricted range of motion. And I think that's where a lot of people are suffering is that they're not expanding their movement capacity. They're not incorporating different movements into their routine. And so the tissue itself is becoming very compressed and restricted because they're not actually utilizing the full ranges of motion that joints, you know, can articulate in. And I think that neurologically that creates a lot of um, stress and anxiety to not actually take the, the brain wear and moving it and causing it to articulate internally by trying to figure out how to move the tissue. And then also, like you said, the stretching that actually mechanical aspect of taking the tissue and folding it and opening it and decompressing it and even getting the lymphatic tissue, the the sewer system, this actual biochemistry flowing through the body as well, where you're getting, you know, restrictions in that biochemistry of the body as well. Yeah. It's, uh, it's something that I think about. I mean, I think about this all the time. I see, people out in the world. And I look at even people that I know, um, I'm always kind of judging biomechanics a little bit when I look at little things. When I see, when I'm on an airplane, 
I see someone trying to take a 20 pound suitcase and just put it in that overhead compartment and struggle with that. You know, I see people walking around with these protracted shoulders and all these little tiny things hundreds of times a day. I can't help think to myself, I'm like, man, I would love to get that person just to do some good scapular retraction and open up. And if only they knew that these things are correctable, you know, people that, uh, that complain about back pain, people that complain about tight hips, you know, I just think about what if this person did five minutes of stretching or self myofascial release a day? What if they just did that? How extravagant that improvement in their everyday life would be if only they knew. And it's interesting that you have the rare opportunity to be the person that can unlock that secret for them. And I mean, I'm sure people's minds are just blown. You know, I mean, I'm trying to imagine the gratitude that the people have for you when you give them this new ability to move as a human being. Yeah, it's life-changing. That's the way I describe it, is what I do is life-changing. And it's unfortunate that the education is not there, right? Like there's not enough physical education in our lives as we go from a child to an adult, unless you focus on it, right? But people get so distracted with their life that there's no one really there coaching them and telling them. So you know, and what I thought was funny is like, once you have that assessment eye where you can see these imbalances, it's hard to not see it, right? You're like Mm -hmm. walking in the airport, walking in the grocery store, you know, at the gas station, you just see these patterns of imbalance. And normally they're just filled with pain, right? Like you see the imbalance and you're like, Ooh, I bet that hurts. And you can see the, sometimes the agony in the movement, right? The way their face is reacting to certain movements, you know, they're in pain. So, um, yeah, it's, it's powerful work what I do and I, and I'm proud of it. And, you know, I love, I love helping people reach more full potential. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you're doing, I mean, just, that is amazing stuff. Um, now do you, I know you're a huge fan of the breath work. Do you incorporate that into your clients or is that a separate thing reserved for others? So you're kind of, or are you yeah, the total no, Like if you're going to work with me, you're going to start with breath work. Like all my clients from the beginning of our session, we do five minutes, maybe now six, seven minutes. Cause I'm changing things up a little, but I have no idea the state that their neurology is in when they come through the door. I don't know if they had a hectic day at work. I don't know if they just had a tough business call on the phone. So to get their neurology and their physiology ready for the training session, we start with breathing. Because one, I want to see their mechanics. I want to see how they're activating the diaphragm. But two, I want to adjust their chemistry and the actual psychology so that they're more receptive of the exercise program that I'm going to provide them for the next 55 minutes. Excellent. I'm a, I have a very, um, I have a very, uh, basic understanding of breath work. Um, however, even the basic understanding I have, i truly see it as fundamental. And 
I, I'm sure that you take things so much further in terms of the more of the health benefits. Um, I train first responders. That's my, it's my primary uh, career. And the reason why I incorporate breast breath work into training is just the ability to calm and recollect oneself. With that said, what are your thoughts on um, what are your thoughts on in how we incorporate box breathing, for example, in terms of for, for those of you that are just kind of tuning in, I know not everyone has the background on this, but box breathing, my definition being a few seconds being three, maybe four, a few seconds in, a few seconds holding, a few seconds out, a few seconds holding and creating that steady pattern. Is that something that you incorporate for your clientele? Yes. Um, so that's, you described the four phases of breathing, right? So you have that inhalation, you have that hold at the top, and then you have that exhalation and then another hold. So those are four phases of a breath. And um, if you look at that and then you create equal parts, you create an actual box in time as far as your timing on the inhalation, the breath hold, the exhalation, and then the breath hold, the pause. And that is a powerful tool to get someone to get conscious and aware of where they're at. Like you said, you use it to calm down the first responders, tap into what's happening internally, and then let them you know, calm themselves down if they were in a state of stress, right? And you know, to educate more of the audience about the breath, your inhalation stimulates the body. That's the sympathetic part of our neurology, which is the fight or flight. So when you're breathing in, your body's shifting up. It's going into a more intense state. And then if you take your exhale and you extend it, that shifts you into your parasympathetic state, which is your rest and digest. So just on the inhale and then the exhale, we're taking the brain and we're taking it into excitement and we're taking it into relaxation. So using that box breathing protocol is a great way to get someone centered, get someone focused internally, right? Because when things are going on, they can get distracted. And so by going to the breath, you can regain that conscious moment of what's happening internally and then put some reins, some control over the breathing, which can then slow the heart rate. Um, but yeah, getting into the protocols, the, the box breathing is a great one. I, I, I like to teach people. I'm really big on just extending the exhale, you know, specifically like, the exhale. Yes. Okay. So having that a longer duration than the inhale and the holds. Correct. And you know, the, you can look at the holds as pauses, right? Like it's a pause in between an exhale and an inhale. And depending on how you time those, those segments of that breath, from the inhale, pause, exhale, pause, you can create a box or you could do another protocol that recently I was reviewing it, that it is used with some tactical groups is a two second inhale and an eight second exhale. So it's a 10 second breath. Now, when you get six breaths per minute. So that means it could be a five second inhale and a five second exhale. That's 10 seconds, six of those in one minute. 
you're going to create a neurological state that's more relaxed. And you can think about it as a cadence, right? Like you're beating on a drum, boom, boom, boom. That six breaths or six beats per minute, six BPMs, is super relaxing for the mind. Now, if someone's biochemistry and their sensitivity to carbon dioxide buildup, right? Like the CO2 is what builds up in your blood when you're metabolizing. If people have a high sensitivity to CO2, they're going to more likely have a faster respiration cadence. So they're going to be wanting to expel that carbon dioxide quicker because their sensitivity to it is causing them stress. I need to get this CO2 out. So they have a higher cadence. People that have high sensitivity to CO2 and a higher cadence more likely have anxiety, have a neurological tendency to be stressed because their pace, their cadence of their breath is replicating a stressful experience. So most people, the general number is like 20 beats per minute, right? The 20 breaths per minute. Think about how fast of a breath that is to get that 60 seconds, right? So we want to take that and slow it way down, way down, closer to that six seconds. And doing that, you need to slow down your exhale. That's going to create that relaxing effect to it. Also doing that is slowing down your inhale so that you can fill in those those gaps. Um, but the point I wanted to make too is if someone has a high cadence and I tell them to do six breaths per minute, it could be irritating for them because the cadence is so slow that that CO2 buildup is going to get way higher than they're used to and that's going to induce stress. So it's important that with the programs that I teach people with breathing is there's three lenses. You have the biochemical lens of breathing. You have the biomechanical lens of breathing. So how they're mechanically breathing. And then the actual nervous system. How is the breathing affecting their brain? And those three ways of looking at breath can be applied to any style of breathing. Box breathing, two, eight breathing, uh, you know, three, seven, eight, you know, there's all these different protocols you can create for different shifts in your body. But the key is understanding what is it doing biochemically, which is, you know, there's CO2 and there's oxygen. Those are the two main gases that we're focused in in a biochemical aspect with breath work. Are we increasing CO2 saturation or are we depleting CO2 saturation? And are we managing oxygen saturation or are we depleting oxygen saturation? And those two levers of those two gases is our biochemical lens of breathwork. And then biomechanical is where is the ribcage in relationship to the pelvis? Are they stacked on top of each other? Are they breathing in the upper part of their rib cage? Are they using their neck muscles to inflate the rib cage or are they engaging through their diaphragm, right? Are they pulling the, the breath in from the diaphragm and into the core? And there's that's the biomechanical aspect. And then looking at those two lenses, right? What are they doing with their gases? What are they doing with their physiology? Is gonna have a direct correlation to the neurology, right? Like what's happening in their brain? Right? If their gases are all messed up, their sensitivities are all messed up, 
and their rib cage is out of position, their brain is going to be saying, hey, like this isn't correct. I feel stressed. I feel overwhelmed. Like there's something not going on correctly. So when you simplify the breath with those three lenses, it really kind of like clarifies everything you're trying to accomplish. It's so interesting the how we have been breathing as humans since the start of time. We've always <laughs> been breathing. It's just the most automatic and kind of it's so automatic for us. And I think we take it for granted so much just how much science and different strategies are behind there. One of the things that once I, when I started kind of learning about some of this more basic breath work, um, I started to incorporate it. And it was amazing that I was able to immediately see how it translated into the real world. Um, this was especially prevalent on scary rock climbs. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, as you can imagine, you know, I do a lot, of, a lot of rock climbing and there's certain types of climbing, depending on what you're doing. Most climbing is just some of the safest stuff in the world. I tell people all the time, you know, you can't do many things safer than some well-bolted sport climbing outdoors, you know, and if you're with a good team and they've got you, you're good. But there's other types of climbing. If you're looking to really push the limits that are run out, extremely run out trad climbs on some really precarious areas and everything. And a lot of times I can remember moments where I've been extremely terrified of making the next move. And I remembered some of my breathing tactics, box breathing. Um, I'm sure you're probably a fan of Andrew Huberman. And um, one of the things that I learned from him was the physiologic sigh that two quick breaths in through the nose, exhale through the mouth. <sighs> and I've used that a multitude of times in those moments when I knew that I had to refocus myself and make the move because there's no going down. I needed to make a move to get to the next location and progress the climb. And it's amazing how it did center myself and give myself the cognitive ability to think through the problem, that was a very high stress situation, you know? And I think without stuff like that, naturally we panic. There's panic naturally going through the body. And as you know, we cannot think through true panic, you know? And something that I always, I always tell people is it's okay to be scared. You're supposed to be scared. That is a basic human survival function. However, you can't enter that red or black zone to where you are so scared that your cognitive ability is gone and you're not making good decisions. So question is, when the panic happens, do you have a tactic to make good decisions and make tactical choices? And I found breathing to be such a great tool in this regard. 100%. 100%. You know, at the end of the day, all you have is your breath, right? And I like to always remind people that you can go weeks without food and you can go days without water, but you really can only go minutes without air. So it's mm -hmm. super important to put that in perspective of where your priority needs to be 
And that if you bring it back to the breath as the main, it's a nutrient too, right? The oxygen feeds our cells metabolically. That that will always tap into your deepest part of your physiology and bring you right back to where you need to be. Now, is the background on your breathing and your interest in the breathing, did that stem from Wim Hof? Correct. What is yes. your, uh, what is your, um, so if you wouldn't mind for those that aren't, um, that aren't plugged into that sector of the world, could you describe um, who Wim Hof is and what kind of, why did he spark interest in you and why did you follow his studies? Yeah. So great question. I was in the physical therapy realm and I was in a Facebook group and someone posted a Tim Ferriss podcast with Wim Hof. And who Wim Hof is, for the listeners, is a Dutch daredevil. He had over 26 world records with Guinness. And one of the major things he did was climb Mount Everest past the death zone in a bathing suit. He also had a record time for climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in a bathing suit. Um, he also had the record for the longest ice bath at like an hour and 53 minutes in an ice bath. Um, so yeah, this guy's energy through this Tim Ferriss podcast was just massively impactful and life-changing for me. And I was shocked to hear that a human could do these extreme feats of cold. You know, I had just gone through a abusive cold bout in Denver for a lacrosse tournament where I was a part of. And we came from Florida in like middle of May. And we didn't bring any warm gear with us. And so during the warm up, it just was a torrential downpour. And the temperature just started to crash. And we're sopping wet. And then next thing you know, like the beginning of the first half is sleeting through our game. And then in the second half, it's snowing. And we're already wet. So you, you can imagine being wet and not having warm gear. It is absolutely brutal. So I was abused by the cold. And this was before winning, uh, meeting Wim Hof. And so I never wanted to be cold again. I was fearful of the cold. I didn't think the cold was healthy. Um, I couldn't imagine what were the benefits of cold training. And when I heard Wim Hof explain his whole ability to climb Mount Everest and do the two-hour ice baths, I just thought, wow, you know, like I have so much more potential as an athlete, as someone that's interested in fitness training, as performance training. I, I have so much more to push myself in. And I'm going to go ahead and start training cold exposure. And so I went ahead and started looking into Wim Hof and his academy. And I noticed that they had opened up a U.S. academy back in 2016. And I just committed. I committed to the whole process right from the beginning. And there was two classes. The first class was in California, 50 seats. And I signed up and I got in. I did the course. And then the second one was to actually be be selected to become an instructor and they narrowed it down to 26 of us and I was the youngest uh, person to be selected and we met in uh, Colorado and up in the mountains and we spent a week with Wim Hof training and yeah it was very powerful life-changing and so that was 
one of the main introductions I had into breathwork. So, so intense. I mean, the fact that he's able to do these things. And I mean, I don't have all the background on it as you do, but I guess one of the general secrets, I shouldn't say secrets, but his superhuman capabilities, I guess is a better way of phrasing it, is he is literally able to raise his internal body temperature, regardless of the temperature outside. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, is he the first person kind of in documented science to be able to put this to the test? Uh, I, I can't say to that specific question whether or not people have been doing cold training and testing it, but really what Wim Hof became famous for was he did the endotoxin injection study, which is where they take a wall of a dead bacteria, E. coli, and they inject it into your blood. And immediately your body has a allergic reaction and it creates influenza. Like people just get sick, like they have a flu and they're shivering and vomiting and they're absolutely sick and within 30 minutes of this injection. And when they did it to Wim Hof, <laughs> he suffered from a headache on the first 30 minutes and then the rest of the time he was perfectly normal. And so they had all these wires and blood tests going on him during this experiment and what they, what Wim Hof proved was that through his breathing protocol, he was able to tap into the autonomic nervous system and modulate his symptoms of inflammation. The markers, the actual markers of inflammation, he was able to suppress them and show that he can shift from his sympathetic to his parasympathetic state, which has supposedly never been documented that a human can you know, control their autonomic nervous system. And that's where he really became world famous because they were like, okay, no human could do this. And then they said, okay, you're N equals one in this experiment. But if you can replicate these results, then we have something going on. And so he trained a group of 12 individuals through the breathing, through the cold exposure training. And yeah, they were able to get the same symptoms. They had no signs of sickness in this injection. And it's crazy when you look at the video of these people that are like, the doctor's staring with a clipboard and they say, you know, from zero to 10, how bad do you feel right now? Zero being nothing and 10 being the worst. And they're all like, zero. And do you have any aches or pains? Zero. And do you feel shivers? Zero. And it's just like, you're, you're mind blown because then they show you the control group and they're in the beds just shivering and sick to the bones. And... Um, that's when it really became world famous Wim Hof, like, okay, you can help people with severe um, inflammation, suppress it and control it through breathing and uh, mindfulness and cold exposure. And correct me if I'm wrong, he took a group in the past or possibly does this on a regular basis up mountains like he did in a bathing suit. And this yes. is something that he, it's, so it's not unique to him. It's not like he has an actual superhero capability himself. He has been replicating his training program and he's able to get these, dare I say, average people and give them this amazing capability to fight cold and control their internal body temperature. Yes, 100%. And 
that's why he says that we all have superhuman capacity. You know, you've mentioned him twice as superhuman. But the thing is, is Wim is big about saying you, Jared, are also superhuman. And the regular person is superhuman. You know, he, all humans have this capacity. And that was really the big message for me that resonated from someone that was in Florida that hated the cold. I realized, like, you know what, I can be superhuman too. And I'm going to go ahead and take this on. And I have gone to Poland and I've climbed that famous mountain and it's called Mount Schnetzka. And it was absolutely brutal in a bathing suit. What was, what was the temperature up there? Okay, when we started at the bottom of the summit, it was like minus one. Oh my God. <laughs> and, then, and then as we started this summit that was like three hours long. I mean, it's, it's, I want to say it's like 4,000 meters or something like that. It's pretty, it's either... 3,500 or 4,000, something like that. It's pretty tall, but um, we got windshield negative 10. I had icicles hanging off my goatee and frost on my arms. You know, it was brutal. Now, what are you wearing at this time? A bathing suit from Florida. <laughs> so you just straight up, you just did this, the Winhoff bathing suit. Like, I mean, this is hours at zero and in negatives. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was crazy. And and the thing is, is I went, okay, let's backtrack a little bit. In 2016 fall, December, that's when we had the certification. So I'm coming up on my seven year anniversary. And Colorado was cold, but it wasn't the right time of the year for us where I thought it was just going to be like brutal cold to get tested as an instructor. So while I was there, there were some other guys that had been to Poland with Wim and had done training with Wim in the mountains in Poland. And they said to me, Ben, if you want to get tested, you got to go to Poland. You got to do Mount Chinesko. So I said, okay, I'm, all, I'm ready for this test. Let's go. So the main academic instructor for the academy, his name is Casper. He had a winter expedition in Mount Chinesko coming up like a month and a half later, and he invites me to be a part of it. So, of course, I'm a newly certified Wim Hof instructor. I want to go to Poland to get tested. So I say, Casper, I'll be there. So I had never done anything like this. And I didn't have Wim Hof there to support me, right? So I took his instructions and I implemented them. I was successful. But there was people that were on this expedition with us that aren't Wim Hof instructors that just regular Joe Schmoes that wanted to test themselves and learn this process. And over the five days that we were there training, very subtle introduction into cold on day one, a little bit more intense day two, a little bit more, a little small summit on day three. I think we had a relaxed day on day four. And then day five, we were like, okay, we're going to go hit Mount Shinetska. And it was brutal. I mean, and everyone was successful. Every single person was successful. Now, when you're doing this hike and you're you're going through this major expedition and human challenge, obviously you're still feeling cold, but you're just not succumbing to the cold physically, whereas a lesser man would just shut down. I mean, shut down and die, let's be honest. 
Yeah, I think so. But you still I, feel it, though. Yeah, of course. It's But when you're moving uphill at a steady pace, you're creating heat. So you're, you're, you're balancing the pace to manage the heat, and you're managing your breath, right? Because you're also moving, and you're, up, and you're up in the air, and it's cold. And you're also having to just dig deep and know that, like, there's no stopping. We got to get to the top. And um, so for these yeah. hours on end that you're doing this, this trek upward, are you on a specific breathing pattern the entire time? Like I take it there is, at, are you just doing in, out, in, out, just like if you were doing any other hike? Or are you laser focused in on, if I'm going to accomplish this, I need to do the tactical breathing to make this happen that I was trained. Is that so 100% the of the hike or just part of the hike? For most of the hike, it's just focusing on the exhale and a consistent breath. Um, that was pretty much it. We didn't really – the tactical stuff is stuff I learned after this moment because this was my beginning and introduction into breathwork. And so – it's more about controlling the exhale, controlling the breath, pacing, you know, not metabolically burning out like a, in a workout, right? Like it's, you're walking uphill. So you, you could definitely push the pace too hard and gas out, or you can go, go too slow and then you're, you're not feeling that motivation to keep rolling. So, um, yeah, it was just focusing on the inhale and focusing on the exhale for that expedition. Absolutely amazing. Now, and I know this is extensive, but could you give us just a brief uh, kind of breakdown? You know, you've been mentioning you're a Wim Hof instructor, um, big into this breath work, prepping up for these ridiculous human feats. What does that training camp that you went to and the whole Wim Hof program, what does that look like on a daily basis? I mean, is this... Is this um, breathing mixed with exercise, mixed with cold exposure therapy on repeat for a few days? Or are there any other crazy protocols that are making you guys so physically resilient? So there's two parts to that question. The first part would be like as an instructor, they have an online 12-week course and they gradually introduce the cold to the you know, participants of the course. And it could just be as simple as putting your hands and feet in a bucket of ice and just letting the circulation in those limbs kind of regulating. It could be also ducking, putting your face in a bucket of ice. But it's all about gradual, no force exposures to the cold through a persistent program. Now, as far as exercise goes, like one of the things Wim's done in the past, and I want to say it was either an hour or two hours, but he, he if you're familiar with the yoga pose, it's called a horse stance. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like getting into a uh, sumo deadlift kind of position. And you're going to sit into the bucket and have your legs nice and wide and feet turned out a little bit. And you're just there. Wim did this ridiculous challenge a couple years ago where he just stood in the ice, like in the snow, in a bathing suit too, and just did his two hour horse stance stance and just a sat two hour horse dance and in it was, the ice. he had it like on a live stream on his phone you know like there was a video camera and then he had the timer on the phone running through the inside of the building 
and shooting out to the outside of the window to see Wim just standing there. And then periodically some of the people that were there would go out and kind of challenge themselves. But, like, it's Wim. He's a beast. So you, you're either going to burn your feet with frostbite or you, you just decided to succumb and be like, all right, I did 20 minutes with him. I'll go back inside or something. Like it was, I want to say it was two hours. It could be an hour, but still, an hour of horse dance in the snow is ridiculous. But it could have been a little bit longer. Um, but, you know, one of the challenges he had us do is do horse dance, right? And really try to, like, feel the sensation of the lactic acid building up in the legs and focusing on the breath and sending that circulation through consciousness into the legs to help mitigate some of that lactic acid buildup. So it's another example of, like, some of the movement aspects that are included with the Wim Hof Method. Um courses but to go back to the other part for this challenge the way that these expeditions work is that it's always a gradual exposure but day one was just like us going out and rolling around in the snow making snow angels like that was day one and then day two where they took us to this waterfall and we all swam in this water of this freezing you know frozen waterfall and swam in the water for you know get in it enjoy it get out warm up get your clothes back on and then day three we went on like a smaller hike that wasn't as intense on the slope and it was just again acclimating the physiology to what we're preparing for at the end of this week of this expedition and um you know that's a nice test getting a couple hours on a so a low slope hike in the snow and that is when i ripped my heels up with these horrendous boots that I had purchased for this trip and just had blisters ready to go for the final expo. <laughs> so not only was I freezing in a bathing suit, but I was just bleeding out my heels. It was just ruthless. <laughs> just so, so intense. Now, um, I want to transition into something that is recently a major part of my life and has for long since been a major part of your life along those lines maybe not climbing the mountains of poland in a bathing suit um however i, I just want to talk about cold plunging from a everyday recreational level i take it you have set up your own cold cold plunge station at your home Yes, I have converted a chest freezer into my cold plunge um, bath. Excellent. It's and it's it's interesting. Just recently, you know, just for about the past few months, I had a buddy at work, and he was he was chatting to me about cold plunging, and you know, at first, I kind of just saw it as, oh, hey, that's cool that you do that and everything, but. I, I never really knew the deep science behind it and I didn't realize the benefits and I can't even think about what really sparked me to really pull the trigger. I think I just came across, um, I believe it was an Andrew Huberman video and podcast and I just happened to keep listening when I was doing some chores and I got sucked into it. and. Um, just going over some of the benefits, I mean, they just blew my mind and I set up, I just have a, I just have a galvanized steel horse trough that 
I set up in the back, put my water in it. I got a bunch of filters and blowers, keep the water circulating, keep it filtered and everything. And, um, you know, I don't have a chiller. I do have some buddies at work. We have a little group at work that uh, we all do cold plunging. And so uh, we call ourselves the Froze Bros. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. And uh, you would, Ben, you would be amazed that you would think that like cold plunge conversations, you would think like they would run out of steam after like a few days or a few weeks. We talk about cold plunging every day extensively every day uh, because it's always it's always a topic of conversation because we have understood and learned about the science behind it and the benefits and we we love it um so i kind of want to just go over these kind of kind of briefly on these are some things that something some benefits that i know of and if you can kind of maybe just you know chat a little bit about them and add on to other benefits that, you know, kind of the first and foremost thing, something that is more well-known when it comes to um, cold exposure, pulling out inflammation. If you're an athlete, especially a combat athlete, maybe a football player, anything that you're hammering the body, even working out a weightlifter, inflammation builds up when we work out, when we go against each other in these combat sports. One of the reasons why I love it is just pulling out inflammation. Um, how do you feel about the benefits of that? Yeah, massive, massive. Are um, you feeling huge recovery when you jump in there after jujitsu? For sure. For sure. I love doing ice baths after hard training and especially with the soreness and you know, the bruising that can occur with jujitsu, getting in the ice bath really feels feels refreshing after all that abuse physically. But yeah, the science is there that it, the cold is so impactful on the inflammation that they, you know, some people recommend not doing cold training after a hard workout because you could actually um, eliminate the inflammatory benefits of training, right? Like when you're exercising for performance, you're creating inflammation to create physiological adaptation where that inflammation turns into healing and then the tissue recovers and gets stronger. But if you get into an ice bath right after that training, all that inflammation that you're using for physiological adaptation could get wiped out. So you're not necessarily getting any benefits from that training that you did before. But if you're an athlete that's professional and you work out multiple times in a day where you need to be back for your second round of training, getting that ice bath after the first one could help you feel much fresher and recovered and not, and maybe you're not wanting to get the benefits from that because you're going to focus on the technical stuff in the second part of your training. So it's a great way to help your body definitely recover. Do you think that the detriments of jumping into an ice bath after workout pertain primarily to like weight training, you know, you're talking about, we don't want to heal ourselves too fast when it comes to that muscle breakdown. But if it comes down to more of, let's say a skill activity versus muscle breakdown and going catabolic, um, at that time, what if we're working, let's say jujitsu and we're not building muscle and, you know, putting the body under stress, would that necessarily be a bad thing if we jumped in right after jujitsu and wanted to kind of heal up quicker? 
No, and I I think it would be recommended for sure. It would Excellent. be awesome. Um, coming up next, and this is one of my favorites, and Brown Fat Production, and kind of like what you know you were talking about with your Winhoff journey is please correct me if I'm wrong. I don't want to <laughs> you know get get too off track with my rudimentary knowledge of this, but Brown Fat Production, we expose our body to cold and our body basically says i'm bringing i'm doing this barney style <laughs> mostly for myself <laughs> but we expose our body to cold and our body says hey we need to develop a new layer of brown fat not to be confused with that visceral fat that we see but that brown fat that deeper fat that goes around some of the internal organs that in itself is the fat that is going to give us the ability to speed up our metabolic engine, increase our, our basal metabolic rate. Yeah. Perfect. Um, brown adipose tissue, right? You mentioned that there's the beige adipose, which is that white stuff. That's uh, the jiggly wiggly stuff. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, we got a little bit of it somewhere. And um, the the brown adipose, the reason it's called brown is because it has large amounts of uh, mitochondria that are inside the cells. And it gives it that brown color because they're like these little kidney beans that are mitochondria inside of it. Now, like you said, when your body gets afflicted by the cold, it's got to create warmth. And what it does is it does thermogenesis, which is the process of creating heat. Now, what ends up happening on a very technical scale is that your body will release a protein called uncoupling protein, and the uncoupling protein goes into the mitochondria and causes it to rip. And when it rips, it releases heat. Now, I have, this is my own theory, but mitochondria are like these water, these water nuclear fusion fission reactors where minerals and ions of these minerals are going inside and there's all this metabolic processing going on to create ATP and energy, right? So it's like this cooking mechanism inside these mitochondria that somehow rip and create heat. And it just reminds me of like an atom when it ex gets cut open, it creates this explosive energy that inside our cells, we're somehow turning tissue into heat by a ripping aspect and um, that's the uncoupling protein so to go back to your point when your body needs to warm up it's going to say hey i need more brown adipose tissue and so by putting yourself into routine cold training your body is going to start to grow more brown adipose tissue it had been thought that as you get older you get less brown adipose tissue but Wim Hof is, you know, in his 60s now and maintains the same level as like a 20, young 20-year-old's 20 uh, brown adipose tissue. So you can grow and develop that. And Wim has a twin, a biological twin that doesn't practice any of his methodology. So they've been able to use his brother as the comparison in laboratory um, testing to actually see, okay, well... Here's someone that does cold exposure and breath work, and here's someone that doesn't. Let's check out their physiology, and it's you know it's pretty cool to see that 
this guy Wim, the superhuman, happens to have a twin brother that we could use as a <laughs> comparison of what what doesn't happen when you don't do it. I love it. Uh, the let's see, the third one I have here, and I don't even want to try and break this down Barney style because my you know my background is just uh, not good enough to explain it, but the dopamine release of cold exposure. Um, what does that really mean? Uh, well, when you get into the cold, your body is freaking out. It's going into a fight or flight response, right? It's going into the sympathetic nervous system and it's like, whoa, what's going on right now? And your body is releasing adrenaline, first of all. So you got your adrenal glands over your kidneys. They're going to dump that adrenaline into your blood. It's going to get pumped into your heart and pushed out into your system. That's going to tell that brain too that it needs it needs some energy, right? It's going to release that dopamine to encourage more of that energy that's also being induced with that adrenaline. So you get a massive hit of dopamine. It's going to help with the pain of the cold, the perception of the cold. Yeah. We can even go into that aspect. Um, Wim's brain has been scanned while he's in an MRI machine with the cold. And it's called the uh, brain over body study. And when you're an MRI machine, you can't move while you're there. And they put Wim in a suit that pumps cold water through it. And so they showed his body getting the cold water and they said, don't do anything with your mind. Don't think about anything. And his temperature crashed like every other participant that's done the study. Then they warm it up. His comes up. And then they did it again and it crashed. Then they did the study. and said, okay, Wim, use your technique. Whatever it is, do it. So he was in there thinking about his body temperature. And he just dominated the temperature. He never even, his body never even went cold. They even had to add more ice to the, the cooling aspect because he was heating up the water so much. But what they showed in his brain is that he was accessing this area called the insula and the periaqueductal gray matter. And these areas control our internal interoception of our body, which is the sense of what's happening. You know, am I safe? Am I okay? What's going on, right? This is their interoception. Am I in a threatening, threatened position? Or am I safe? And then the other aspect was going into the endocannabinoid system and doping himself with opiates and dopamine to mitigate the symptoms of pain that's associated with cold. So when you get into the cold, your body is going to, one, get into the fight or flight response, which there's going to be some dopamine that's dropped during that. But two, you're also suffering from pain of the cold and your body's going to mitigate those feelings through the endocannabinoid system and release um, these powerful substances to cause you to not feel pain. Now, I see what you mean from a adversity aspect, kind of the benefits there being able to, you know, almost help us out in these very difficult situations, possibly survival situations. Um, what would what would a extended dopamine release look like for your average Joe that's just gonna get in there, 
get the benefit of the dopamine release. And now they're just going to work. They're just living a regular day. What is the mindset? How would a regular average person benefit from a dopamine release? They're going to have a mood enhancement for sure. I mean, they're going to be feeling a lot better about life with that increased dopamine um, from an, you know, from an endogenous release versus an exogenous where they're taking marijuana or something like that. They're, they're creating this dopamine release internally from their body with the cold and it's going to boost their mood. I mean, that's why people claim they feel so good when they do the cold exposure plus with the breath work where you release serotonin as well. Um, you're, you're, you're changing your chemical balances to have a better outlook on life. And so someone that's stressed, someone that's low on life, you know, one of the big things women is trying to help people realize is that they have the ability to manage their own emotions and their mindset through breath work and cold exposure to boost their mood. So that's why he calls it happiness, strength, and health. Those are the three pillars, right? We didn't go over this. I skipped this part, but just to bring it back into what the Wim Hof method is, is cold exposure, breath work, and mindset. Three pillars, which is happiness, strength, and health. Your happiness you can manage with breath work, one, and two, cold exposure. After you get done, you get that dope hit. That's going to boost your happiness. Strength, when you get into the cold, you're creating mental strength of dealing with adversity and also physiological strength, which we can get into it. I think I want to talk about this in the next benefit of the cold training. And then um, happiness, strength, and health, right? So now the health aspect of cleaning out the system with the breath work, lowering inflammation with the cold, boosting your mood, all that together creates health. So those are the three pillars that Wim Hof likes to manage, happiness, strength, health, through cold breathwork mindset. Excellent. Uh, and you already mentioned it, but this is, this is my last kind of point, kind of benefit that I have listed and by far my personal favorite. And when it comes to cold plunging, limbic friction, at least that's how Andrew Huberman describes it. Limbic friction. And the way he describes it is like you said, our ability to deal with adversity. Um, you know, thinking about, I think about climbing, I think about jujitsu, um, I think about getting into an ice bath, I think about those activities. And this is kind of what I was talking about at the start where uh, we're very much on the same page, <laughs> according to uh, William, in terms of the things that we do. Um, I think we are both people that we fully commit, just like you fully committed to your, uh, to your Wim Hof Academy, you know, you saw a challenge, you knew it was going to be a difficult, strenuous and painful challenge. And you said, Yeah, of course it is. And I'm still in, you know, and that's what I find amazing that this tool, being a cold plunge tank, we can use it to create to um, control that limbic friction, our hesitation. And I look around the world from whether I'm at the gym, whether I'm just out meeting people. And I think about how many people say no to challenge because it's difficult, because it's going to be hard, because it's going to be scary. 
Um, and this goes from the climbing community to every other community out there. Um, but being able to control limbic friction and say, hey, why don't we just say yes to challenge? When we take our foot and put it into that cold plunge, I think both of us, I mean, especially you, you have so much more experience in this. I'm sure you still have a slight degree of hesitation when your feet hit that water, but you do it anyway and you sink into that tank neck deep and you just do it. Um, so that's, that's my spiel on why I love that aspect so much. I a hundred percent agree with you on that. That's, that's part of this uh, training aspect of cold is pushing through boundaries, pushing through perceived boundaries. Um, you know, like we call it the can do mindset. I mean, it also can be described as growth mindset, um, stresses enhancing mindset, you know, combining those together, you're just going to push new boundaries and, I think that's probably why the Wim Hof Method is being so successful is it's giving people an outlet to push themselves a little bit harder um, and, and be successful. Um, what, what, to caveat off of that, you know, one of the big benefits that we teach in the Wim Hof Method and I share in my workshops is de-escalation from stress. Right. So, yes, this resistance, pushing through the resistance and I and to go with you too. there's definitely times where I feel hesitation. Every I think every normal human would be like, I don't their physiology is like, why are you going to put me in this freezing water? I don't want to go in this freezing water. Why do we have to go in this freezing water? And that's where your mind has to come in and say, no, nah, listen, this is good for your health. I know you're not going to enjoy it, but we got to go do it. And um I have that still, but I just understand the science. And I think that's the biggest key too, is understanding the actual science. And then once you know that you're like, okay, I'm going to do it because it's just going to be so much more impactful for my life. But I think about that all the time in terms of knowing the science. If, if I just had a friend come by and say, Hey, I got this cold tank of water out back. You want to jump in? Like if I were that friend and I didn't know, I would touch the water and be like, no, why would I do this? But when I'm sitting in there now in the mornings, the I keep repeating to myself, and maybe this is a weird mantra, but I sit in there and I'm trying to work on some breath work and stuff. Like, you know, I'm doing my thing, but in my mind, I keep repeating. Think about the benefits, the benefits, the benefits, the benefits, because I'm not doing it for fun. I am in no way doing it for fun. I'm... <laughs> You know, I'm not that, that, uh, masochistic, um, but <laughs> that's all I think about. And I think about all those things that we just mentioned, you know, all right, the dopamine, all right, pulling out inflammation from jujitsu last night. All right, cool. Limbic friction. I'm going to be better at doing hard things. Oh, brown fat. Give me more, give me more, you know? And that's the only thing that gets me through the three minutes. Got it. Well, check this out. When you get into the cold, your body cannot differentiate between whether or not you're going to die or or if you're going to survive. It just gets a signal that says, hey, this is so cold that if you do not get out, I'm going to die. I'm going to get hypothermia. My organs are going to slow down. I'm going to die. So I'm asking you internally to get out of this tank right now. And so it's going to flood you with the chemical response of what I call the death signal. 
This is such a high level of stress that is saying, if you don't get out, I will die. You need to respect this or I will die. And so this cold, of, and I like to train at like, you know, mine's at 0.1 Celsius, which is literally above freezing at the mark of freezing, that if I tried to do a world record, I could die. So my body instantaneously is like, hey, get out, you're going to die. And so you're getting pumped with that high level stress and you have this awesome opportunity to be in a safe environment and say, not today, I'm going to de-escalate from this level of stress. And that to me is one of the greatest benefits of this cold plunging training that we can enjoy is that you're in a safe place, you're in your backyard when it gets colder in winter, it's going to be even more stressful. And your body's going to send out this massive stress signal to your brain. It's going to be like, Jared, you need to get out or you're going to die. And it's going to just pump you with stress, um, adrenaline, just get everything jacked up. And then you just focus on your breath and you say, I'm okay. I'm going to make it. Oh, there goes another minute. I'm going to make it. There's another minute. And then boom, you get out of your three minutes. By that time, you're already cool. Your breath is super slow. You're relaxed, and so you've trained your neurology that when it gets afflicted to one of the highest possible signals, because you know weight training is stressful, jujitsu is stressful, you know work rock climbing is stressful, but is your brain really getting that like I'm gonna die signal from those activities? I'm debating it. You know, like I think I think there's some really stressful moments where your body's like, dude, I almost died. And you feel it and you're like, whoa, cold, real cold is one of those to me. So I think that that's one of the biggest benefits is de-escalation from intense stress signal. I love that. I love that. And, you know, you think about it, there's not many other moments in our lives when we have the opportunity to go ahead and bring that adversity and that de-escalation skill to our lives. It's it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to replicate. And I talk about that in our training, when I'm training first responders, you know, and we're going through, we're going through a, a building, you know, doing building clearing, or we are doing, you know, some sort of high risk scenario, or we're doing some sort of combatives training. And the simple fact is that every person training, they know deep in their heart that if they make a wrong move, they're not going to die. You know, the worst thing that's going to happen is maybe, you know, maybe we yell at them or maybe we make them have some repercussions through some physical activity, you know, but they're not going to die in that training realm, you know? And so very, very hard to replicate, but I think it's cool how you kind of you're kind of saying that the cold it's the great equalizer or we do in fact trick our bodies into potential death even though we know that we have control our bodies do not know that fact as soon as you hit that cold water your body's like dude this is deadly this is a deadly pro you're putting me in a deadly environment right now and you could tell your brain, oh, I'm cool. I'm, I've done this a hundred times. I've done this for years. But your adrenal glands don't care. 
they just feel the temperature of the environment. It's like, no, this is freezing. I'm going to die if I don't get out. And so you're just constantly, your body is instantly on drive of like, hey, I need to do whatever I can take to survive right now. If I do, if I get lackadaisical, if my body's not working, we're going to have a problem. It's too cold. It is amazing stuff. I mean, I mean, for me, definitely life changing and people laugh when I talk about code exposure and I'm glad I can have this conversation with you <laughs> because outside of the froze bros. Yeah, I'm a bros bro, I, dog. You know, <laughs> You know, I bore people really quickly once I get on a tangent about cold exposure. You know, they're like, oh, hey, man, you know, what'd you do this morning? Oh, I was uh, I was underneath 48 pounds of ice. Oh, cool. Yeah, cool, that's cool. I love how that's the response to is like, they always say like, oh, that's cool. And you're like, yeah, literally, it's cool <laughs> as <laughs> like somehow it always gets slipped in. They're like, wow, well, that sounds cool. And you're like, yeah, it is cool. Literally. <laughs> Um, we got go ahead go, go ahead. ahead we got to get our william on the um on the uh, <laughs> cold exposure train i think we can do it with our peer pressure combined hey will when you listen to this this is your call <laughs> now is the I'll, time <laughs> i'll tell you what will is a just i know most people listening do not know him but uh we know him very well and uh talk about just a great example of just a physical and mental specimen who lives it. I mean, he, he sends me, he sends me his lifting videos. I see him just a random video will come in and it's him deadlifting in the garage. Uh, talk about being on the path and staying on the path. Yeah. And just brilliant. You know, Will is super smart and um, he's uh, got his PhD in physics. So he's a, uh, he's got, it a is cool knowing a physicist. <laughs> He's a big I, mean, I mean, I feel like I have to abuse our relationship a little bit more and just call him up with questions about the universe. <laughs> well, just uh, call him up one night. I'll like, you know, I should call him at like 3 a.m. tonight and be like, hey, Will, uh, what's the meaning of the universe? Can you tell me real quick? <laughs> like, Jared, come on. Uh, so one other benefit that I want to touch on and then we can, you know, there's probably a few that we can go over later or, you know, like I'm sure people can find it. But one that you didn't mention, and I know you'll appreciate this with your background in actual weight training, is that inside the circulatory system, there is smooth muscle that when you get into the cold, you get vasoconstriction. So every time you get into there, your muscle inside your circulatory system is being strength training. It's getting concentric training to squeeze that blood and bring it to the core. And then when you get back out, you get vasodilation. So now it's eccentrically lengthening the diameter of those arteries and veins and opening it up. So then you keep going back into the cold and then you get out and then you get back in. And so you're retraining this smooth smooth muscle tissue to get resilient and strong. And there's really nothing else that replicates that kind of vasoconstriction of that tissue and making those veins and arteries much stronger and fitter, which lowers blood pressure, um, lowers heart rate. So you're just, it's another way of weight training for your circulatory system. Very interesting. Just the benefits are limitless. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's for, amazing. For those uh, listening, um, I do want to. Uh, I'm I'm above my timeline on the cold exposure 
aspect of things, but I can go on all day. So I got to limit myself. But um, since uh, for those listening, just to close out the cold exposure aspect, two questions I just want to put out there for you um, just to kind of get your opinion and get the education out there, especially since you have a very unique background with the Wim Hof training. People always ask me, the people who do give me the time and day to talk about cold exposure. How cold does it have to be to reap the benefits? And how long do I have to stay in to reap the benefits? So it really depends on the temperature of like what you have available. But I've, I'm pretty sure the research shows that it's 65 degrees Fahrenheit and below is where it starts to get on the medicinal spectrum. 55 and below is for sure medicinal as far as getting the anti-inflammatory response, the even some of the stress control the that you get from being in the cold. And then the colder you get, the more impactful it is and the less time you have to stay in it. Okay. And I think one of the most important things to let the listeners know about cold training is that it's always gradual and it's no force. Okay, so there isn't about this. There's no records you're trying to set with cold exposure training. And one of the key takeaways is something called the minimum effective dosage. Okay, with cold exposure below 55, the minimum effective dosage is 90 seconds to two minutes. Okay, so that's a minute and a half to two minutes is all you need to elicit the minimum effective dosage for all the medicinal benefits that you're seeking. Now, what ends up happening physiologically is the longer you go in it, the more risk you're bringing into diminishing returns, right? So now you're taking your physiology past those minimum effective dosage and potentially starting to carve away at those benefits and getting a diminishing return on your time spent in cold. So, you know, I've been training for seven years in the cold. I still do two minute ice baths. I sometimes do three minute ice baths. Sometimes I do a five minute ice bath, but I don't necessarily go over five. I have, I've done my own personal tests, but I've also had had skin burns and some issues maybe with neurological damage on the fingertips. So it's not necessary to push ourselves in the cold because you are at risk for harming yourself and so it's super important to understand no force gradual exposure you know you could do two minutes minimum effective dosage for a year two years whatever like there's really no rush because the other aspect of this now as i froze bro is that this is a lifestyle this is something that you'll do for the rest of your life so there is no sprint. You're not sprinting somewhere. This is like, I'm going to be doing this for 30 years. So let, and, and think about Wim Hof with his records. He's been doing this for his entire life. So he wasn't like a master ice man in his first five years. You know, he's really developed this over decades to be this super resilient snowman. So it's important to think about that as like, this is a lifestyle. It's in no rush. I can get my minimum effective dose at two minutes and then work from there and kind of feel it out on your own terms. And, you know, we say feeling is understanding, but most importantly, this isn't a competition and it's not a challenge. So 
Um, you know, as far as what's medicinal, 55 and below is for sure medicinal. What's the timing that you need? Two minutes is a safe number. You know, at 55, you could probably go squeeze out to 10 because it's not that cold. But for me, when I'm running at 0.1 Celsius, literally right above 32 degrees Fahrenheit, my water is artificially stimulated to that because I use a chest freezer and I run a pump in it. So it's literally just brutally cold and two minutes is satisfying for me. I get out. I'm not that cold. And the other thing I want to explain to your listeners and then we'll close this up is that cool. You get into the cold training and you, you do your time in the ice bath. When you get out, that's when the other training starts. Okay. You can cheat. You can get out, throw on a hot blanket, grab a big cup of coffee, put some hot tea under your armpits and just instantly warm your body up artificially. And you're not actually metabolically training your physiology to get warm. So you got the cold training and then you got the post cold training, which is now you have to sack up and decide, hey, what am I going to do? Am I going to go jump, jump in the hot sauna? Am I going to jump in the hot shower? Am I going to drink hot tea? Or am I going to just tough this out? And that's what is what I tell people is trying to be like a Tibetan monk. You know, in the Wim Hof Method, we have actual physical movement techniques to elicit brown adipose activation and creating more heat through actual physical movements. And then there's also the I'm going to be a monk and I'm just going to sit here and eat this cold and feel it out and just tough this out and shiver. And that's where you start to really develop your body's internal ability to heat itself. And the last part is some people get so excited about challenging themselves in the cold. Oh, I'm going to do 10 minutes. Oh, I'm going to do 15 minutes, whatever. Right. But then they get out. And now that they've gone so long in the cold, that post-training training that you have to get in is too hard. They've set them up themselves up for failure because their physical blood is so cold that to really heat themselves up, it takes them like an hour, right? They're still shivering and they're like they're wearing a hoodie and they're still shivering 30 minutes later because they dropped their whole body's temperature too low. So getting that sweet spot of two minutes, three minutes, you know, cutting it off at five. You're giving yourself that opportunity that when you get out, you can heat yourself up naturally. And that's the real training. You know, when you can just, when, uh, down here in Miami, it's, it's hot. So I'm kind of cheating. You know, in Colorado, it's a little bit different because you get out and it's cold. And that requires extra fortitude. But when I do a five-minute ice bath with the pump running at 0.1, I get out. I'm not, I'm not shivering when I'm in the tank. I'm, my body's locked in. I'm in, I'm in the zone. But when I get out and I sit there in the sun and the sun hits my skin, the thermal receptors on my skin say, hey, it's hot outside. So then my body vasodilates the, the blood in my limbs and it pumps cold blood to my core because it's like, hey, it's, it's hot out. So you don't need to be so vasoconstricted. So then my body temperature just drops. Because I got cold blood from my limbs mixing in with my core blood, and now I'm shivering. I'm in, I'm in the sun. I just did my five minutes. Maybe a minute or two later, I'm there just shaking it out. But I just sit there 
and I tough it out and it, it takes me probably five minutes between five and if there's no sun out and it's got a cloud in the sky, it's 10 minutes. But between five and 10 minutes, now I'm back I'm back at homeostasis. I'm no longer shivering. I'm functional and I can do whatever I want. So that's the post-training. Cold training, post-training. And when I'm done with that, I feel content. Boom. I'm, I, I don't even have to dry myself up. I've already, I've already let the water evaporate off my skin and I'm good. But people don't understand that that is that extra part of this cold process training that you can maximize your results because that's the whole idea is yes, you get in the cold, you get the cold benefits, but you still need to metabolically train to heat yourself up after that instead of artificial. And not to say that you're not getting that while you're in the cold. But you're definitely going to enhance that metabolic adaptation if you just sit there and you let your body warm itself up versus, oh, I'm going to throw on a big hot jacket and drink a coffee. Absolutely fascinating. The uh, Again, just you know your knowledge and being able to have that in the back of your mind when you're going through this just stress and difficult training – it's amazing. <laughs> uh, so I would be remiss if I didn't hit this last uh, section here. But uh, again, something else that we both share a love for in the world of doing difficult things. Can you tell us a little bit about your jujitsu background? Yeah. So I've been training for like five and a half years now. And I'm a purple belt. I got my purple belt last December. And uh, I've been an active competitor. So once I finished lacrosse and then I got into jujitsu, um, I just felt that I needed to compete. And so I signed up and, you know, as a white belt, I competed multiple times, probably like 11 times in the year, you know, once a month, traveling to different places, competing, climbing the ranks, and then got my blue belt. And again, competing in IBJF and uh, some local tournaments in florida you know doing gi and no gi and at one point in my no gi blue belt master one i was ranked six in the world for my my division so i really put a lot of time you know i've i won a couple absolute divisions in uh atlanta as a no gi blue belt fighting monsters you know in the free-for-all weight class and coming home with triple gold um so i put in the work and yeah i love jujitsu it's been life-changing that's the best way i could describe jujitsu to me is that i was never into martial arts growing up i had no one to teach me how to throw a punch or how to fight i did a little bit of wrestling greco um in like fourth grade but it never really turned into anything and then um yeah like jujitsu just built some confidence in myself as an individual to deal with conflict, deal with fighting people and um, understanding that, you know, it's more about the technique and the grace of how you move your body. And that's why I love training in the, the gi kimono, kimono because it's so technical as far as just one, two centimeters of difference in where you place your grips can be, you know, a you know, life or death kind of situation as far as getting the submission or not, um, or the sweep. 
So I love the technical aspect of it. I felt like that was like to me what really draws me to it is just like how technical of an art it is as a movement specialist. And um, yeah, I think it's important for people to understand self-defense, you know, as someone that didn't know it and now knows it, um, it, I hope I'm never in a scenario where I need to use it, but I, I do feel much more confident that, you know, if someone was to bug with me and they didn't know training, then they just mess with the wrong person. For those listening, just to break down, there's generally two different types of jujitsu, generally speaking, gi and no gi. Gi just means that you, basically you are wearing the, let's call it the uniform, generally a thicker type of kimono versus like a karate uniform. It's kind of a thick fabric, kind of think like a thick bathrobe. If I'm really just trying to create a visual, you know, so you have a lot more grips, no gi. And that's where it sounds like you prefer gi. Um, I will always prefer no gi. <laughs> just <laughs> uh, just because just coming from a high school and collegiate wrestling background, um, I started um, or I started with some, uh, I started with kind of no gi. I went over to gi for a little bit. And I was so annoyed. I'm trying to do these moves and people keep grabbing my collar and they're grabbing my sleeves and they're grabbing my pants and just having that wrestling mindset. I'm like, get off me. Why are you grabbing there? You need to grab my wrist or my arm or, you know, something else. And it was just, it frustrated me, but I still practice. I do practice with Gi just so I can have that skill set as well. Um, but again, it sounds like there's such a theme and this really, I think is so consistent with both of us seeking out these inherently difficult lifelong objectives that they don't have a finish line. You know, it isn't like, Oh, I learned everything I could know about jujitsu. That's it. Mission accomplished. Moving on to the next sport. It's such a, you know, the flow of the sport. You kind of said it, the art. There's so much art and flow behind it, right? And, you know, you think about the high stress, critical decision making needed in that moment. And I'm sure that's part of your allure to it as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I tell people I'll be doing jujitsu for the rest of my life. And it is a rabbit hole that never ends. And there's always a different way to do the technique. And you could try it this way or this other instructor found out another way to do it. And so as someone that I like to call myself a movement connoisseur, you know, we were talking about the spectrum of performance and rehabilitation. But jujitsu brought in a whole nother branch into this spectrum of movements and whether or not they're performance or they're therapeutic. Now there's the martial movements, right? Like learning about martial art movements that seems to be an endless, infinite capacity to just mutate and evolve and re-evolve and replay into endless movement. It's, it's crazy that a lot of people, I think, uh, maybe that aren't familiar with jiu-jitsu exactly, they kind of see it as a martial art and it's like, oh, you're going to this martial arts studio or this dojo specifically for the purposes of self-defense only. 
you know, and it's interesting because I do a lot other, I do a, many more martial arts than just jujitsu, you know, especially just wrestling. That will always be my true background, wrestling, boxing. And the way that I see it from a cognitive standpoint is it's something else that gives me the ability to become a beginner again. And I think we all hit a stage in life at some point, especially those that like to excel, right? And whether it's rock climbing or whether it's our education or whether it's our career path or a sport or a hobby that we have, I think we all hit a point to where we get really good at something. You know, we get good at it, we become proficient and knowledgeable and we forget what it's like to be a beginner again. And if we're not careful, it's so easy to just become a one trick pony, you know, and I'm sure you don't want to be known as like, just you're been the breath guy or been the cold exposure guy, or, you know, you are so multifaceted, you know, and I think you're kind of, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you don't mind becoming a beginner again. And I think it's a humbling experience. What are your thoughts? I 100% agree with you again. And that... <laughs> hey, we should be friends, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> bro, we're already pros bros, dog. We're already pros bros. We're locked in for life. Yeah. <laughs> we're frozen together. Um, but yeah, I mean, beginning is where you learn, right? Like if you're interested in learning, as like a as a activity do in life, you just have to accept that with learning comes not knowing, and with not knowing becomes humbleness and being a beginner, and that's what the white belt mentality is. You just realize you don't know that much and or anything, and you just have to continually show up and decide that you're gonna have an open mind, and be receptive, and be curious. And decide that that's what you want to do and, and focus on those things. And so, yes, I, I purposefully, my jujitsu master, he's, he's a world champion multiple times. He created a Facebook group and he started recording the videos, the techniques from our class when I was a white belt. And he, he it's called White Belt, Best Time of Life. And that's the name of the group. And so he was uploading it. But I purposefully told him. I'm not going to look at the Facebook group. And he's like, why not? I said, you didn't have Facebook group in Brazil when you started learning. I want to be able to come to the universe, the, the academy, study, be attentive, be curious, be so absorbed into that moment that I don't need to go back to a Facebook group to review what we learned because now I'm relying on something Versus I want to be so obsessed with what we're doing in the moment and learning because I don't know that I don't need it. And that's part of why I excelled so well is that I forced myself to just absorb and learn and like you said, be a beginner. And the thing is, is okay, I've been training for five years, five and a half years. I got wrecked by this master fifth degree. His name is Pimenta. He's one of the best jujitsu guys in the world and middleweight and then I rolled with him and he just embarrassed me I mean just and I'm I'm supposed to be proficient in jujitsu 
as a purple belt. And this guy just dogged me like I was a white belt. And so, like you said. Welcome to my life every day. <laughs> it's like, dude, you know, you're, it's, there's always levels. There's always someone better. There's always someone that can teach you something else. So it's about having an open mind, being receptive, being curious, and enjoying the process. I think it's so important not to get, not to bog yourself down losing. And some people hate losing in the gym you know i've been to some gyms where they truly hate losing and that's i get equal satisfaction losing and then submitting somebody like you know you got to admit talk about a dopamine release like there's nothing more exciting than you know learning something a few weeks ago or a month ago or yesterday going into some live rolling and then executing that move under stress mind you under stress, you do it, you submit this person, you're like, wow, that person was going 100%. I was going 100%. And I came out on top. No doubt that there's just amazing, (laughs) like, that's so exciting. But on the same token, I get intense satisfaction out of losing too, because it keeps me in check. And I need to keep myself in check. So every time I lose, And this is, I'm always playing these weird mental games with myself, man. Like, you know, I'll lose, I get submitted or I get choked out, you know? And I think in that moment, I tap out, boom, boom, boom. And I think to myself, what if this was the streets? What if this was legit, especially in my profession, there is no tapping out. There is no losing, you know? And it's kind of a two part thing to where you can have the strongest survival mindset in the world. It doesn't matter if you don't have the skill to back it up. And on the other end, you can have all the skill in the world, but if you don't have that just resilient, just gritty raw mindset of, I am going to win with all my skill, no matter what you will have to kill me mindset, you also won't win. Right. And so it combines both of those. But when I get choked out, I'm like, you know what? I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I would have died. But that's the beautiful thing about jujitsu is it's I feel like it's one of the only things in life that I can think of off the top of my head to where you can simulate death. You just died. He just choked you out. But you know what? You get to hit the reset button. And you get to do that multiple times every single day. You're living this like video game of hitting reset. And not many people have been in a life and death fight. But when I bring new people into the jujitsu world, it's like, you get to do it now. You don't have to be in your first fight on the streets. You can do it right here multiple times. And I love that. (laughs) It's exciting. Yeah, I love it, dude. It's the the academy of simulating that death signal, dude. It's fun. I mean, it's exhilarating for sure. And to go with the whole not wanting to lose, you're either going to tap or you're going to snap. And then if you don't, you're going to break your ego one way or another. Like some, You're either going to break yourself or you're going to break your ego. That's what I like to say. <laughs> 
Ben, I want to be uh, respectful of your uh, your your time. Um, and I missed this note on here going through, but do you have a second to talk about magnesium? Yes, I would love to. All right, I'll I'll be honest. All I know is that it's one of the essential electrolytes, sodium, potassium, magnesium. But if you asked me in isolation, what is magnesium and what does it do in isolation? I have no idea. Got it. Why are you so stoked about it? Okay. The reason why I'm so stoked about magnesium and its magical miracle capacity, so it's the magnesium miracle, is that one-third of your body's enzymatic processes require magnesium. So think about it if you had 3,000 reactions that happen in your body. 1,000 of them require the magnesium element to turn on that engine of that enzymatic process and boot that engine and get it running okay so also atp our energy um, molecule that keeps us living requires magnesium and i want to say eight steps to create the atp molecule requires magnesium to turn 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 to create that energy okay so magnesium is so necessary for our physiology to exist and be healthy um what else could i say about it there's so many different things like i said a thousand of them that that are beneficial to our body but require magnesium are there things that is magnesium one of the things that is kind of going to be working behind the scenes internally in our body or is it something that will we will notice like if you put someone who is magnesium deficient and you said, Hey, here's magnesium. Are they going to notice something or do they just have to trust the internal process? Check this out. When you flex your muscle and it gets tight and hard, that is calcium flowing into the muscle tissue to make it calcify and get rigid. Now, when you let go of that flexed muscle and it starts to relax, that is magnesium flowing in to relax the muscle tissue. So you can think about everything in your body that's either flexing, like constriction, is calcium, and then the relaxing aspect of that flexing is magnesium. So just think about the heart, right, as it's pumping. That's calcium and magnesium. Calcium and magnesium. So just in that aspect of like, well, if someone's deficient, there's 65 different diseases right now, clinical diseases associated with magnesium deficiency. So there's so many things that can instantly be felt as far as replenishing the magnesium element in the body. People that get leg cramps, you know, athletes that are working too hard and they're not getting their electrolytes in, that cramping is because of the calcium and not enough magnesium to relax that tissue. So if someone suffers from cramps, you hit them with the magnesium, gone. No more. You know, people that are constipated, you can give them magnesium. But so what excites me about magnesium is that there's a new type of magnesium that is unlike other magnesiums. Okay. I discovered this back in 2011, 12, and it's a magnesium chloride and it's in the ionic form. Now, this is technical mojo stuff, but what an ion is, is 
a smaller version of the element of a mineral. So if you get the, the actual um, chemistry table of elements out and you're looking at all the different um, atoms that are on it and you have hydrogen and oxygen and calcium and like you said potassium and magnesium you can get a smaller particle of that called an ion and the ion is actually what your body cells use of these minerals is the ionic form of minerals whether it's potassium whether it's calcium whether it's sodium it's the ionic form of these minerals that your body is using in the metabolic processes. So this lady named Dr. Carolyn Dean, she formulated a stabilized magnesium ion solution. And what's really fascinating is that when you get tested for your magnesium levels, what's commonly used is called the RBC magnesium test, red blood cell magnesium test. And so your doctor draws your blood he checks your red blood cells and says, oh, you're in this little uh, threshold of magnesium, so you're not deficient. What they don't understand is that the red blood cell to be a healthy cell requires the management of the magnesium within it in a very restricted threshold, where if it goes past too much or too little, the red blood cell is not going to be healthy. So when they go to measure your red blood cells and they see the level, oh, you're in the, you're in the range it doesn't necessarily resemble the systemic magnesium levels inside your, you know, your other fluids. So your extracellular fluids. And um, what Dr. Dean has done is she did a study like 2016 or so where they have a new test for studying magnesium ions in the blood. And what that does is that she's trying to show that if you test for the ionized saturation of magnesium in the blood, it resembles a much better marker for your levels than the RBC test. Because of that threshold being so managed in your blood that if you can get an ionized glimpse inside your body, you can see if you really are deficient or not. So with this product that she has available, this was shown in this new testing form of ionized magnesium to increase that threshold in the blood within 30 minutes to two hours. So now you're getting a supplement that increases your magnesium stores almost immediately. And the reason why is because it's in the ionic form. And this is, this is where Will Godwin would be great as a physicist because when I was studying my minor in physics, you have your metric chart, right, where you have your, your sizes, where you have a meter, and then you have a centimeter, and you have a decimeter, and then you have a um, nanometer, and then you have a picometer. So if we're moving on the scale of sizes, right, like things are regular size, like, you know, you can measure things in meters, and kilometers, or you can go down and measure in centimeters. But if you get really small, you get to nano. But one scale below nano is called pico. And pico is where the ions of magnesium exist. And this is such a small stabilized form of magnesium that it can penetrate the channels of your cells to 
bringing minerals into your cells. So um, ever since this discovery, and I was studying physics at the time, so it was making sense to me because I was studying subatomic particles, you know, the quantum scale, like I was studying the tiny, tiny stuff. So when this product came out and it was like, oh, this is what it is. It's pico-ionic stabilized magnesium. I'm like, wait a second. You're telling me that in this liquid formula, you've got the smallest possible form of a magnesium? That's crazy. So um, I've just been recommending this product, Remag, for 10 years. It's called Remag. Yes, Remag. And... What, what other companies do is they have to bond magnesium to something that's going to prevent it from oxidizing. So when it's on the shelf and it's in a capsule or it's in a uh, pill form, it's bound with another component, another uh, mineral that's going to keep it ma like magnetically stable so that if oxygen was in the air around it, it can't connect to that molecule and degrade it through oxygenation or oxidation so um she's been able to stabilize that in the smallest possible form and that's what separates it from any other magnesium form is that you know i try to tell people it's it's cut kind of like if you don't understand these scales and visualize it it's hard for the listeners to really get it but if you're making rock candy sugar and you take sugar and water and you stick the little stick in it, and then you start to grow these giant crystals of sugar on the stick. You know, those crystals are big. You know, they're you can measure them in centimeters. But when you take that crystal and you smash it down into a powder, but then you look at it in a microscope, it still looks like crystals. It's just, they're just bigger, uh, smaller crystals. So there's a huge difference between something that's capsulated, pill form, versus something that's stabilized picoionic. And so, go ahead. So how do you feel about Remag versus a banana? So where are we at there? <laughs> you know, for, for like okay. the, for like the average Joe. Yeah, so I don't really put a lot of faith in the food systems. And that could be a whole nother podcast as far as like why isn't the food system providing enough nutrients inside the food? Is the vegetables grown correctly? Were they harvested at the right time? Were they too early? Whatever. We could spend a whole hour on just that topic, dude. And the thing is, is that the way I look at the supplementation with magnesium remag is that you're going to get such a high dose of magnesium in one serving compared to if you broke it up into spinach or if you broke it up into a banana. So you're not going to actually get that therapeutic dosage that you get through supplementation. So I'm not saying that people can't get their nutrients, you know, naturally through their food sources. I mean, people eat a lot of like organ meats and liver and it's packed with nutrients. But if you're someone that's in performance training, and someone that needs to push their body, even in your field with your business, th these guys are pushing themselves to limits that are very stressful for the body. So if you can make sure you have the right therapeutic doses of minerals that have so much importance in your body, it's it's game changer. It's life it's life changing stuff that you know I've been I've been a user for eleven years, 
And this has been through lacrosse. This has been through jujitsu. This has been through cold training. And I've just seen so many other people's lives change from it that like, yeah, it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. So I, I'm a big advocate for magnesium, but very importantly, remag. Dude, awesome to know, man. Awesome to know. Uh, ben, where, I mean, with all your various knowledge, where can people reach you? Um, questions, inquiries about your business from a training standpoint? Yeah, you can go to benpelton.com and that's my website and I have all my services available through the website benpelton.com. I'm also on Instagram at benpeltonplan, P-L-A-N. And, um, you know, you can always reach out through there. I'm pretty active on my Instagram. And, um, yeah, my email is ben.pelton at gmail.com. So, you know, feel free to ask me questions and reach out. And what is your, your current company called? So uh, my current company is called Be Perfect LLC. And um, I established it back in 2013. And we just broke our 10-year anniversary. And, um, you know, the, I, my, I call it Team Be Perfect. And, you know, there's a lot of mixed reviews about perfectionism and how that can rub people the wrong way. But in performance training and being an athlete, I think everyone understands what it means to hit the target, mm-hmm. right? You got to have the perfect shot. You got to have the perfect approach. You got to have the perfect um, mindset to get the things done that you want to uh, have excellence. So um, it's a big cookie to swallow, but I, I try to let people know that we can strive to high levels. And that's what it is. So be, be perfect, LLC. Absolutely. And why would you not? Why would you settle for just okay? You know? <laughs> I hear you. I mean, like, dude, we're trying to be perfect on certain things. And, and that's the thing is, even if we can't reach it, at least we're shooting for it, right? They say, if you're trying to reach the moon, shoot for the stars. I love that. I love that. Um, and you, And you're down in... Miami currently? Correct. Excellent. Good to know. Good to know. I'm going to be be spreading that word because I got to tell you, your your philosophy and your ethos on life and how you approach life and the challenges you do is, you know, we're on such a similar wavelength. And, you know, I can tell that you just see the benefits of doing these external things better and how that leads to making the rest of your life better. You know, there's such a correlation there and you're on top of it, Ben. I'm, I'm extremely impressed with you and uh, I'm super glad that Will got us connected. For sure, Jared. I appreciate you bringing me on and, you know, I want to put this out there, a little plug. If you're ever interested in doing a Wim Hof workshop, I also travel to teach some of this stuff. So if you guys want to dive deep and uh, do some breathing and cold exposure or even some of the oxygen advantage. You know, let me know. I can put something together and you're, you're part of the world. Dude, I'm, I'm stoked. I'm going to reach out to the Froze Bros and <laughs> <laughs> I think they will love that idea. Super, super. Ben, been, been an absolute pleasure. And again, thank you for coming on. Yeah, man. Great, great chat. See you then. All right, man. Have a great night. All right. I hope everyone enjoyed the episode. This is a topic that I can go on and on and on about. We could have been on this podcast for six hours, but 
there were some limits to how long you guys are willing to listen. And so I've got to be realistic about that. But what a fascinating topic. Anyone that knows me knows that when it comes to cold exposure and the benefits that it gives us when it comes to jiu-jitsu, when it comes to climbing, when it comes to doing anything difficult, these are things that affect our lives in so many ways and they literally shape our entire character and everything else that we do. And so I hope you guys found some benefit out of listening to today's conversation. I know I did. I really want to thank Ben for coming on and dedicating his time and dispensing such amazing knowledge. Thank you, Ben. I very much appreciate it. Again, shout out to Dr. William Godwin. William was the connection for Ben and I and a longtime friend of both of ours. So, William, we appreciate you. Hope everyone is staying safe and enjoying the transition into from fall coming up here soon into winter. It's going to be a good time. It's a great season and just keep on enjoying it. Keep doing hard things. All right. Signing off.